Well, with the help of our God, we turn back once again to Second Samuel and chapter 16 this evening. Second Samuel chapter 16 and looking at the whole of this chapter. And when David was a little past the top of the hill, behold, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him, and so on. Last week we asked the question, would you serve another king? A plausible contender for the throne of David has now boldly staked his claim. The very heir apparent himself, David's own son, Absalom, has made his way to Jerusalem, who seems to stand in the line of promises, the promises of God regarding David's family. David flees Jerusalem in a great haste, so that the city be spared. But at the end of the previous chapter, chapter 15, three men appear onto the page of history, offering their support, demonstrating their loyalty for David and all that he was going through. There was, first of all, Ittai the Gittite. He was the man who vowed to stay with David and by his side, whether it be in life or in death. And he went on and passed over with David. Next up was Zadok the priest. And Zadok, along with the ark and the other priests, demonstrated their loyalty to David by following out of Jerusalem. Content with their uh, loyalty, David actually sends them back, back into the capital city to act as his eyes and ears in the city. And finally then we have Hushai. Hushai the archite, David's friend. He was also sent back to Jerusalem, not with the priests, but to be a kind of a fifth column, sent to counteract and defeat the cunning counsel of Ahithophel. Three David loyalists, faithful to the king, each given very different and diverse situations in which to serve him. Chapter 16 gives us another three characters who appear on the, the radar screen now of Scripture. Three more main characters fill the chapter. We have here, first of all, Ziba. Ziba is the servant of Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, remember, is the lame son of Jonathan, David's great friend. Ziba comes onto the scene. And then we have Shimei. Shimei, the son of Gerah, of the house of Saul. The man who threw stones and cursed David. And lastly, we have this significant character, Ahithophel, the master tactician who turned against David in favor of Absalom. Now, despite some appearances to the contrary, each of these men opposed David in what are quite radically different ways. We have Ziba, we have uh, Ahithophel, we have Shimei. Well, we're looking this evening at the whole chapter under the title of Three Ways 
to oppose the king. And we're using these three men as our guides. Three ways to oppose the king. The first way then, by flattery and deception. We'll then follow that up with by outright cursing. And lastly, by apostasy. Three ways to oppose the king. The first way is by flattery and deception. Flattery and deception was the way that Ziba opposed David. You might think he doesn't seem to be opposing David in the chapter. And so it appears. But he is pretending to be one of David's loyal servants. A faithful man. But he lies to the king about Mephibosheth. Ziba opposed David by bringing himself into the camp of David. A liar, a thief, a flatterer. Ziba wasn't a man to hang about. He was, in this chapter at least, the first one out after David. Notice the text in verse 1. says that David was only a little past the top of the hill. That's the Mount of Olives. Remember, he'd be going out, climbing the Mount of Olives. He'd be met with different people as he was leaving in the previous chapter. He was just then... Just past the top of the mount. So only a few steps behind Hushai the Archite. A reliable, solid, dependable man like Hushai had met David at the very top of that mountain. The very top of that hill. And we sang about it just a moment ago there in Psalm number 3. That Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom. And we're told there... I cried, and from his holy hill the Lord me answer made. This is a place where David worshipped God. He cried to God there, and God answered his prayers. And he was aware of the Lord's nearness and presence, and Hushai was a great comfort and support to him at that point. Well, hot on the heels of Hushai, in comes Ziba. Again, a man who seems to be all reliable. He comes with very welcome provisions to donkeys worth of provisions now you've met Ziba before quite some time back now and are studying the life of David but Ziba had been summoned by David years before this to tell David are there any of the household of Saul to whom David could yet show kindness Ziba was a known servant of the household of Saul And Ziba told him honestly and told that there was Mephibosheth. There was still a lame son of Jonathan's who yet lived. And so Ziba is then sent to call Mephibosheth and bring him before David. And in doing so, Mephibosheth is sat at David's table. But the lands of Saul are restored to Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth and Ziba rather than is told as to be a chief steward of the uh, household and to manage the property and the lands and the husbandman of it all. Probably quite extensive family lands of King Saul. And at that point, everything with Ziba's life seems to be in order. He goes off and he does as he is told, as far as we can tell. Now he comes in with these two burdened donkeys, hundreds of loaves, there's raisins, there's summer fruits, there's even a bottle of wine. 
He's presumably bringing the, the fruit of the land that he managed on behalf of the house of Saul. Now, the, the, the amount of food is not insignificant, but in the context of the needs of all the people, one bottle of wine, a few hundred loaves, not a big loaf as we would think it, but more like a small roll, would not have gone terribly far. But it was something for the men as they were following David out of the camp. David, of course, is naturally curious about Mephibosheth, why he's not there, and then naturally disappointed when he is told at least our reason why Mephibosheth hadn't come. Ziba lies and says Mephibosheth is hoping that the people of Israel will turn back to the house of Saul and they'll make him king. David is harassed. David has been pressurized by his own son. He has to leave at a moment's notice. And he is understandably frustrated, irritated, annoyed with Mephibosheth as far as he understands it to be. And he reallocates all the land directly to Ziba. The problem was that Ziba had lied through his teeth. We later find out what had actually happened. What actually happened was because of the haste of David leaving and Mephibosheth being lame, he'd been left behind. Ziba hadn't taken them. And as proof of his own innocence, he had allowed his beard to grow since the day David had left. He wouldn't cut it until David came back to sit on the throne. Now, David's strategy, remember last week, David's strategy had been to leave Jerusalem. And he did that deliberately. He did it for at least two reasons. It was a kindness to the city. So the city wouldn't be consumed in a civil war. But also a test to see who he could depend on. And that seemed to have gone very well. With the likes of Ittai the Gittite. And Zadok the priest. And Hushai the Archite. And now Ziba the servant of the house of Saul. Ziba is in that context for David. David trying to find out who he can depend upon. And Ziba is part of those who, no doubt at some risk to themselves, went out after David. Publicly was seen to be following after David as he exited from the city. Now Ziba is an interesting case. Well, why did he do that? We don't think he was a good man. We think he was a liar. Why did he risk so much for David? Why did he come to David's side only to then deceive and flatter David? Surely a man with that kind of a heart and these kind of tendencies would have fitted far better off back with Absalom. Surely that would have been his natural home. And yet, no, this man wants David's approval, wants David's endorsement, wants his acceptance. He was willing to go to great lengths to get it, willing to lie about Mephibosheth, willing to falsify the appearance of what had actually happened, lie about another man to make himself look better in the eyes of David to try and secure David's approval. My friends, here is a very serious matter and a very serious question for us all. Do we want to be approved by Christ but on our own terms. Do we want to impress him with what we can bring to the table? 
with how much more loyal we will be than anybody else. We'll be loyal to the congregation. We'll be loyal to the Bible. We'll be loyal to the Christians. We'll be loyal to the church. And we'll do it better than half the other people will do it. Friends, such a, a view of loyalty to Christ will do much to oppose the kingdom of Christ and to damage it. It's a sure way to oppose the kingdom of Christ, to identify with it when you are not of the same spirit as King Jesus, when you are not yourself converted. It's a searching question. Are you a Ziba? Are you here to try and buy your way into the acceptance of the king? Are you willing to go out and leave a more comfortable option that you have for living and getting on with things? A bigger place perhaps to join a smaller and more despised band Will that win you acceptance from the king? Will that bring you into the king's favor? Do you give faithfully, generously even, to the church with your two donkeys full of loaves and raisins and summer fruits and wine? Some are even comparing themselves to others, making out their own superiority. That's what Ziba was doing. But friends, you here, you're not dealing with a David. David, who at that point had a thousand other things in his mind, who didn't seem to have given time to question Ziba's story, to think it through, to think it was likely, to prejudge Mephibosheth, who'd been loyal and faithful and thankful. You're not dealing with a David in these circumstances. You are dealing with Christ, the king and head of his church. You are dealing with God the Son. And God the Son is not to be taken in the way David was at this time. God the Son is not to be duped the way King David was. He is not going to be tricked into thinking that you are truly on his side if you are not. That will never happen. That cannot happen. We might be tricked. The people of God might well become confused. And have a view as to who is on their side. That doesn't meet, marry up with reality sometimes. The Lord's people can be blindsided by a plausible soul. Who might seem to want to be on Jesus' side. Who might have some evidences to suggest that he is on Jesus' side. But this is as a searching matter for us all to turn the question upon ourselves. You here who love the Lord as much as you who do not, could I be a Ziba? Is that my place? Is that all I am? Could I be this sort of person who only gives a fair appearance of being on David's side? Am I able to convince everyone else around me that I am one of the good guys? 
Am I able to deceive my classmates? Am I able to deceive my friends? My family? Am I able even to sort of convince myself? But what about Jesus? Friend, to pretend to be on Jesus' side. When your heart is not, not washed clean of its sin. When your soul is not born again by the power of the Spirit. When lies and greed still drive your heart. Then you are really, whatever the appearance might be, you are an opponent of Christ the King and of his kingdom upon the earth. Look at what Ziba got. He got the land that he coveted. He got the, the, the approval and endorsement of David to go ahead. He was seen in the country as now being on David's side, as being a David loyalist. He got what he seemed to want. And he was probably feeling quite pleased with himself. And quite assured of his position and dear friend, are you assured too that all is well when it is not? Are you assured by the wrong things? Are you assured by the comfort of the bed that you lie on spiritually? Are you assured that all is well with your soul when it is not? Because the Lord's people accept you as one of them. Or because things have worked out well for me since I joined the church, since I began to be religious my wealth has increased. My, my responsibilities have increased. My standing has increased. My circumstances are favorable. Does all that help you to sleep at night? Does all that help you to conclude that you are, as much as anybody else at least, part of the kingdom of Christ upon the earth? But it's all outward circumstance and it's not the heart. Beware of Zeba. Ziba had all the outward endorsements that he craved, but his heart was a lying heart. And his tongue was a lying tongue. And maybe he even tricked himself, but he was not of the same spirit as David. Ziba was not a true servant to the king, whatever it might have looked like from the outside. He was an opponent and a danger and a threat to the kingdom of David. Beware Ziba. That takes us to another way. To oppose King David. By flattery and deceit first of all. But secondly. By outright cursing. We have to do a bit of digging. We have to look right back. To when Ziba first comes on the scene. And then look ahead a bit to what happens later on when David's returned and what Mephibosheth says actually happened to uncover the treachery of Ziba. If we only had chapter 16, we'd have ranked him with the good guys. But what comes next is a man the exact opposite. He wears his hatred on his sleeve. He bears his animosity and malice against King David like a war wound, like a badge of honor. He's been nursing his hate for years. Shimei is a man who is simmering 
like a pot just come to the boil. Spoiling for a fight, throwing stones. There's, there's giants of men, of David's mighty men, walking to his left and to his right, but he's not seen any of it. He is blind. All he has is hatred for David. He's spoiling for a fight. He's throwing these stones. He's throwing the dust. He's desperate to try to provoke David into some act of retaliation. And he wants to give some excuse to kick a man while he's down. There's no debate about it. Shimei is a horrible man. He's a, a bitter, twisted wretch of a character who does nothing to, to enlighten and grace the pages of Scripture when we read it. I think... When we read the passage, we all tend to have some sympathy with the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother Abishai. Abishai wanted to take off his head. One of the commentators, Riley, observes that people without their heads tend to do a lot less cursing. And that seems to have been Abishai's thought. We're all in agreement about Shimei, an open enemy of the cause of David and the kingdom of God upon the earth in that time. We know exactly where Shimei stands. He's in the camp of the baddies. But there's only one problem. Of all the people to have a different view of what Shimei represents is David. Listen to David in verse 10 as he replies to Abishai's request for permission to remove Shimei's head. Verses 10, 11 and 12. The king said, what have I to do with you, ye sons of Zeruiah? So let him curse, because the Lord hath said unto him, Curse David. Who shall then say, Wherefore hast thou done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my son, which came forth of my bowels, seeketh my life. How much more may this Benjamite do it? Let him alone, and let him curse, for the Lord hath bidden him. It may be that the Lord will look on mine affliction and that the Lord will requite me good for his cursing this day. No mention of taking off his head. No mention of even getting him to clam up or be shooed away. None of that. David gives voice to an uncomfortable thought for us while we read the chapter. The Lord has said to him, Go and curse David. David says, let him alone, for the Lord hath bidden him. Now David is not at a distance from the Lord at this point, as Psalm 3, as we sung it together, proves. He was in prayerful position. Yes, he made a mistake about Ziba, he was hasty. He wasn't in a backslidden state. He now expressly gives his verdict as to what Shimei represents. Let him alone, the Lord of us. And this view of David's about Shimei is really at the core of Shimei's involvement. It's at the core of how David is still grappling with the whole incident. And how David is comprehending. How is David understanding what the events around them? They're unfolding so quickly. That even when we read through the chapter. We can hardly keep up with how quickly. David's had to get out of Jerusalem. 
How much harder for David it must have been to get his head round all that was going on. His head must have been just spinning from it all. How is he making sense of it? How is he trying to understand what is happening? David recognizes from these words we can tell that the suffering and the pain and the rebellion that is happening and all that is going on is part of God's chastising of him for his sin, his great sins with Uriah and Bathsheba. Now David is not excusing Shimei for his behavior. He later makes that very clear. Nor is he suggesting that Shimei had a literal angel appear by his bedside one night and say to him, well, God wants you to go off and curse David. That's not what he's saying either. David is rather acknowledging explicitly God's hand is in this. Abishai, you know my sin. You know what God said would happen to me. God's hand is in this. Can't you see it? And won't you accept it? God has arranged these circumstances. And oh I don't want to be able to forget that God is in this. Don't let me forget it, David says. Now I hope that nobody here engages in the outright cursing of the Lord's anointed King Jesus or of his people that Shimei does. It's an awful position to take up. It's a cowardly line to embark upon. It makes you the gospel age equivalent of a Shimei if you curse the Lord and his people, if you sneer and hate the Lord's people. What I want us to notice then is that God has his plan when this happens. If we hope and trust that there are none here who would explicitly take the position of Shimei, we need to notice the position of David regarding Shimei. Because that's the emphasis of the chapter. We need to notice that David emphasized that God is involved, that God is working. And more than likely, many of us come across Shimei's and Shimei-like characters still, and we will do so again. People who cannot contain their animosity for the gospel to the church regarding Jesus and Christians, they just bubble up with hate and they spew bile against the church at every possible opportunity. They can't contain themselves. In fact, I came across someone just yesterday who told me, and I tried to offer a tract, thought I said facts. I said, the gospel, the, the church have no facts. The Bible's not any facts in it. Jesus wasn't even real. He went on to, to make some other strange statements about how, because not every religion can be right, therefore no religion is right. And our natural reaction when people do this and say this sort of thing is to be like Abishai. Just off with their heads. Our natural reaction is to make them keep quiet because they're talking such rubbish. But David shows another way. 
David points to the work and plan and overarching intentions of God. It's not for David to exercise his own vengeance or take revenge upon Shimei. He is sure enough of his God to leave it with him. In fact, David goes further because verse 12, it may be that the Lord will look on mine affliction and that the Lord will requite me good for his cursing this day. It's an amazing verse. David is carrying, nursing the hope in his heart that the pity of God will be roused by the foolish, wicked cursings of Shimei. That as David is being cursed by Shimei, so he would be blessed by God. David, you see, knows his God. He knows God. David was a man after God's own heart. And David knows that God is kind. And that God loves his people. And that the Lord is tender-hearted toward them. And that to touch his people is to touch the apple of his eye. And he hopes that the Lord would take note of the misery of his situation and bring good out of it for him. And the Lord would show yet his care and his kindness to his servant David. Despite David's admission, I deserve it. The Lord has bidden him to curse me. The Lord is behind it. I am sure I deserve it. And yet he says, leave him alone. It may be that the Lord will take pity upon me. Notice what David does not do. He does not get in the way and suppose the plan and providence of God. Not even when it's a Shimei cursing him. He waits for God's pity and God's compassion. And in this I want us to take comfort from the story of Shimei today as a congregation. Because our day and our age, our island and our community has its fair share of Shimei's. I spoke to another man recently who derided what he saw, and rightly so, you couldn't argue, the shameful behavior of some of the ministers of the gospel in recent times, and therefore hated the church. Plenty others find plenty more to throw stones at. There's no shortage of ammunition. For Shimei to pick up stones and throw them. We have made sure of that sadly over the years. As the professing church of Christ in our community. We have made sure there are plenty of stones left for people to throw. And that is a burden we have to bear. But can we also friends not carry David's hope. And follow David's heart. It may be that the Lord will look on mine affliction. He didn't say I don't deserve this. He didn't say he should not do that. He didn't say God. Was against this sort of behavior. No. He knew he deserved it. But he said it may be. That the Lord will look upon mine affliction. Don't stop the affliction. But wait for the goodness. Of, and kindness of the Lord. To 
to come to your aid. And so the true son of David develops this kind of thinking and this sort of strategy even more clearly in the New Testament where he says in Luke chapter 6, But I say unto you which hear, love your enemies, do good to them which hate you, bless them that curse you, and pray for them which despitefully use you. He goes on a few verses further down in Luke 6, 20, uh, 36 or so. Love ye your enemies and do good and lend, hoping for nothing again. And your reward shall be great. And ye shall be the children of the highest. For he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Be ye therefore merciful as your father also is merciful. So are those who try to lend their support to the kingdom, but they're not truly of the kingdom. And they end up weakening the kingdom. Men like Ziba, they actually do damage to the cause because they associate themselves with the kingdom. They're treated as part of the kingdom, but really they're charlatans. And then there are men like Shimei. Men like Shimei who... Think nothing of casting stones and dust upon the head of the true king and all his people with him. And they're desperate in heart and soul, obsessed with seeing the end of King David. Obsessed with seeing the crown fall from his head and him be shamed and humiliated in the sight of everyone. Thou bloody man, David. But they actually serve to invoke the pity of the Lord for his persecuted people. And do more good for the cause of Christ than ever Aziba will do with his two donkeys full of raisins and summer fruits and loaves and wine. And do far more good to the cause of Christ than ever they would have wanted to do. It would tear them up inside to realize that their hatred has been turned for the good of Christ. <coughs> good of Christ's cause. They hate him. And yet they are made a blessing for the cause of Christ. Well, finally, how do you oppose the kingdom? By apostasy. Thirdly, we come at last to Ahithophel. One time he had been David's most trusted and valued counsellor. Notice first of all the way Hushai behaves in all this. Towards the end of uh, chapter 16 there. Verse 16 and so on. After Absalom and all the people have come into the city of Jerusalem and, and occupied it. Well, then Hushai, remember that fifth column David had planted. He suddenly comes to the fore. He sounds every inch like the Absalom loyalist that he's not. But he's meant to be. Meant to look like. And he convinces Absalom. <coughs> we, we kind of wince a little at the way Hushai behaves and the things that he says. Can it be, can it be right? Listen to what he says. God save the king. God save the king. Now, you're pretty sure Absalom took that in reference to himself. But who do you think Hushai had in mind when he said, God save the king? He didn't say, God save Absalom. He didn't say, Absalom is king. He said, God save the king. Absalom then challenges him. Is this any way to treat a friend? Because he knew he was David's friend. 
And he was David's friend. But Hushai replies by saying he is only concerned with serving who the Lord chooses and who the people of the Lord will choose. And again, Absalom takes this to himself. But again, we think in Hushai's mind, this referred purely to David. Again, in this way, the language preserves Hushai's integrity, at least to some extent. But Absalom, in his pride, chooses to take it as referring to himself. And he says in verse 19, As I have served in thy father's presence... He says, you're your friend? Well, as I served in your father's presence, so I will serve in yours. In other words, he didn't serve David because he was David's friend. He was David's friend. But he served David because he was the Lord's anointed. And he was serving the Lord. And that was going to continue now in Absalom's court. He was going to be serving the Lord. Not serving David because he was his friend, but serving the cause of the Lord which meant supporting David. And he's going to do exactly the same thing now, seemingly under Absalom. But back to Ahithophel. This man advises that the best way for Absalom to consolidate his support and make them realize there's no going back, there's no compromise with the men of David, Ahithophel knew that the excitement of the moment would pass, the enthusiasm of a new king would wane, they would then look back to what had happened in the past, and how David had been a good king, and a just king, and a faithful king, and a victorious king, and a good warrior. They would start to hanker after it. They needed to know there could be no turning back to David. It was important as far as Ahithophel's counsel was concerned, that all ideas of any possible reconciliation were put out of the minds of the people. And so he counsels Absalom to make himself vile and detestable to his father to show he could never be acceptable to David again by going in to his father's concubines who'd been left in Jerusalem. Now here is treachery, true treachery. Here's a supposed friend of David's, Ahithophel, a counsellor upon whom David had often relied. And his treachery, his counsel isn't over yet. It carries on into the next chapter, which we'll come to, Lord willing, next week. But for now, notice that to join and then to fall away is to put yourself in a worse position than if you had never joined at all. And that's what Ahithophel does. He apostatizes from David's side. He falls away from supporting David. To begin on David's side and then to turn and to become a traitor and to support Absalom, that is indeed to oppose the kingdom of David very, very seriously. You, you know that very, very often and, and still rightly in our services and particularly on a Sabbath evening when we appeal to you and we call to you who are yet unsaved in a congregation, young and old, and we call to you to submit to the Lord, to come to Christ, to call upon him for mercy for yourself, to surrender to the Lord's cause and submit to his kingship we are urging you to come and support the cause of Christ upon the earth. To be out and out for him. To be on his side. 
We do that and we will do it again, no doubt, if the Lord spares us all. But tonight, and because of our text that is here, I want to urge a very different matter. I want, you, I want to urge you not to take one step forward towards the Lord that one day you will have to retrace because you're not really His. Ahitophel is the Judas Iscariot of the Old Testament. He's the traitor. He's the betrayer. And dear friends, those who turn back from the cause and kingdom of Christ are traitors to the king. They are the very worst kind of opponents of the gospel. They are far worse than Shimei's. Far worse than Zebas. Now I hope you know that I love you as my people, as my congregation. And I will plead with you every time we come into this place together to come to Christ. But I want you to be so very careful about the dangers of falsely coming and then falling away. If you come without faith, if you come without conversion, if you come without confession of sins and repentance for your sin in your heart, if you come in your own wisdom, if you come at your own counsel, like wise Ahitophel, you will fall away again. And the last state of that man will be worse than the first. You cannot come like Ahitophel to the kingdom of Christ. You cannot come in your own wisdom. You cannot come as some kind of a kingmaker. I was betrayed in the way Absalom, uh, Ahitophel now thought he would make Absalom king. He'd made David king. He would make Absalom king. You cannot come as if your support is what will suddenly make the difference to everything and transform everything. And that'll be great. And everyone will slap you on the back and say, oh, it's good to have you on our side. You cannot come as if your profession will save a congregation or boost the cause or help out King Jesus because he's in difficulties and things are low. You cannot come like that. You will not last like that. You will turn away. You will fall. You will apostatize. You will turn back. You will betray. You will be like Judas. And you will be like Ahithophel. You must come in the exact opposite way to Ahithophel. You must come as a nothing and as a nobody and with nothing to offer. No wisdom to give. No advantage to your being adopted into the family. Nothing to confess but your sins. Rather your failings, your flaws, your depravity, your guilt. Confessing your sins, it should be how you need him, not how he needs you. In this way, friends, and we say it again gladly, come. Come to the Lord. Come to Christ. Come to the true Son of David.
But don't come like a traitor. Don't come like an apostate who's making the first step, what seems to be towards the things of Christ, but actually it's a first step rather towards the devil. And the devil entering into Satan and I'm going out into the dark. Oh, friend, here is a way to oppose the kingdom. It's to be a false member who then apostatizes. And that is more solemn for every one of us here than we might want to think. But rather, we must confess Christ. We must come, yes, but not as a traitor, but upon our knees. Not as someone who has something to offer, but as someone who needs everything that Christ has to offer us. As those who have no wisdom of our own, but who will find it in Christ. And so to him we come, and to him we confess. To him we bow. And he is able to do what David could not. To all who come, he will keep you forever by his side. Probably in some of what we've said, it's alarmed some of you here today. Alarmed you to think, well, I'll be better off not coming in case I turn back. In case I apostatize. I'd better not go at all. Oh, friends, don't look to your own strength. There's plenty in Christ for you. He will keep you. He will bring you. He will preserve you. Don't stay where you are. There is a wonderful welcome waiting in the arms of the warm-hearted Saviour. The one whose name is Wonderful Counselor. He will give you counsel far better than Ahithophel. He has wisdom for you, for your life. And his wisdom is this, come to me. And all that come I will in no wise cast out. You will never be cast out if you come to Christ on your knees as a sinner. May God bless his word. Let us pray.